Support the Bartholomew Town Podcast by subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts. This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Welcome in to another edition of the Bartholomew Town Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Bartholomew. On today's episode, I sit down with Common Cause Rhode Island's John Marion. John Marion is the executive director of Common Cause Rhode Island, a nonpartisan public interest organization that was founded in 1970 with a mission to, quote, promote representative democracy by ensuring open, ethical, accountable, effective government processes at local, state, and national levels by educating and mobilizing the citizens of Rhode Island. During our wide-ranging conversation, John and I discussed several pressing issues facing Rhode Islanders, including the consequences of an undercount in the 2020 census, modernizing the state's elections, and his assessment of change agents in the state's General Assembly. New episodes of the Bartholomew Town podcast every Tuesday and Friday. Listen on your favorite app or visit BartholomewTown.com or RIPodcast.com. It's where you'll find the dozens of conversations I've had with Rhode Island influencers like Providence Mayor Jorge Alorza, Lieutenant Governor Dan McKee, the Providence Journal's Alan Rosenberg, legendary investigative reporter Jim Taracani, a look at Rhode Island's future with Representative Mike Chippendale and Nico Lamazzo. It's all right there for you at BartholomewTown.com. It's been really fun to hear from some of you wonderful listeners out there. You can always reach me. I'm on Twitter at Bill Bartholomew or send me an email, Bill at BartholomewTown.com. Also, coming up on June 8th, I've been awarded a producer's grant for PVD Fest. I mentioned this on the previous episode with Mike Rea. Super excited to bring you a live podcast and variety show in the heart of downtown Providence this June. Stay tuned right here on the pod for more details or follow on Instagram at pvd.fest and at Bartholomew Town Podcast. All right, let's go right to my conversation with Common Cause Rhode Island's John Marion. The term I like to use is a good government group or a government reform group. Um, we, we sometimes are called a watchdog group, but we actually don't do uh, a ton of true watchdogging, right? So uh, you've interviewed a lot of journalists who spend a lot of time um, digging through public records and, and stuff like that. We do less less of that. Um, we see ourselves more as putting the tools in place for people who want to do that, right? So I'm not spending a lot of my day making public records requests. I'm spending my day trying to make the public records law better. Um, and so that's the reform part uh, and less the watchdog part. There are times where we're a watchdog. I've filed complaints, um, public records complaints, open meetings complaints, ethics complaints, campaign finance complaints against all sorts of politicians uh, and public officials. But um, but that's sort of uh, a side gig to the, the lobbying part for reform. Yeah, so ultimately you're a lobbyist in a sense for good government. Yeah, yeah. So um, I uh, – some – Folks think lobbying is a dirty word, but I'm a public interest lobbyist, right? So most lobbyists are there um, for narrow interests. So, you know, it might be Verizon's lobbyists trying to get a tax break for Verizon. I'm there to try to get, you know, a better ethics law that benefits everybody. It's in the public interest uh, if we have a better ethics law or a better um, public records law. So I see myself as sort of a a public interest um, advocate is the term uh, of art that we use. Uh, but but legally, I'm a lobbyist. I have a little badge. Um, don't have it on me today, but I have to wear a badge around the state house. Um, and in fact, it was our idea years ago 
uh, to make people wear badges. So if I forget to wear it, people, uh, the real lobbyists, uh, the corporate guys like to point it out. Yeah, they'll if give I, you a jab for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if I don't have it on. So I make sure I, I have it on whenever I'm in the building. I didn't realize that was something that Common Cause had pushed the identification uh, badge, if you will, for lobbyists. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we've been behind a lot of the government reforms in the last um, 40, 50 years. Um, so we, we're uh, coming up on our 50th anniversary. But, you know, starting in the 70s with the Sunshine Laws and the initial campaign finance laws um, after Watergate uh, and then up through the 80s and a lot of stuff um, that came out of the state constitution convention in the 80s, we were deeply involved in that. Through the 90s, um, with separation of powers uh, and changing how judges were picked in the state, um, and then up to today where we're working a lot on election reform and stuff like that. Yeah, let's zoom out, I suppose. Do you feel like Rhode Island's elections are free, open, totally the way they should be, or what's, what's the major problem that we need to address if they're not? Yeah, so there's no platonic ideal for an election. Um, you know, the, the, the U.S. Constitution— give states broad authority to run elections how they want to. Um, and states have gone in all sorts of wild directions. So, you know, I've spent some time in Colorado. In Colorado, there really aren't polling places. Everybody gets a mail ballot in the mail, every single person in the state. Um, and then they can drop them off at these huge vote centers. They love it out there because it's big, open, open area. Um, they don't need to, you know, close down schools and have polling places. Um, that that's good fit for them. Um, New England states tend to be more traditional. You know, uh, election day is sort of a civic uh, holiday, so to speak, and people like to go to their polling place. Um, but uh, people's preferences are changing. So um, people like uh, to vote early. And in most states, have sort of uh, even the mail ballot states like Colorado are letting people do it a little before election day. Um, Rhode Island is just hidebound to like election day is election day, and that's when you vote. Um, even though Rhode Islanders want to vote a little early, so we um, have been pushing for boy six or seven years now to try to get early voting. But um, it was part; uh, it was the first part of a big package uh, that we started in uh, 2013 with, uh, where we wanted to kind of modernize registration and modernize voting. Uh, in sort of all aspects of elections, get new machines. Um, so we've been looking at sort of making elections more modern for about the last six or seven years. Um, not that we want to go to a whole different model of voting the way they did out West, uh, but simply take what we have and make it a little more 21st century. So so better machines, um, auditing those machines, making sure they're they're counting correctly, uh, letting people vote early into those machines, so uh, uh, letting people register online, automatically registering people when they go to the DMV. Um, so it's like this whole series of steps from registration through voting day through the tabulation, the counting of the votes that we're trying to make more modern. And of course, in Rhode Island, we already have emergency voting, which a lot of people would argue it's basically de facto early voting anyway, so why not clean that process up and formalize it into, you know, proper early voting. Then on the other side of, of as far as moving the primary, you know, if you move to August, there's arguments, well, now everyone's at the beach. It's really not that much earlier. And of course, in this state, if you tried to move it to May or June, you'd run into immediate opposition from the sitting General Assembly members. 
So what's how do you, what's the strategy that you think we should take to modernize elections now? Does it start with early voting more than anything else? Yeah, I mean, so um, you mentioned so we have these emergency mail ballots. Um, so uh, starting in 2011, uh, they changed the law so that uh, people could go into a city and town hall the 20 days before an election. Uh, and all they have to say is, I might not be able to be at my polling place on election day. And they can cast a ballot. Um, but it's not real early voting, one, because it's not called that. It's still called an emergency mail ballot. And two, because they're voting a mail ballot, meaning um, it has to have two signatures or a notary on it. Um, and that causes all sorts of problems. Some of them get thrown out uh, because the signature has a problem uh, and things like that. And it's created inequities in our system. One of the great things about Rhode Island um, and elections in Rhode Island, we don't have a lot of inequities like other states. So if you look at Florida, you, you know you look at uh, historically African American parts of the state that'll have super long lines compared to other parts of the state. That's true um, in a lot of states. We haven't historically had that. Poorer parts of Rhode Island have had the same voting system as richer parts of Rhode Island throughout its history, and that's been a great thing. But what's happened with this uh, emergency mail ballots is some richer communities like Westerly um, have been able to sort of say, well, we'll open town hall all weekend and we'll um, invite everybody in. Uh, And so richer parts of Rhode Island uh, are doing a better job in some instances than poorer parts of Rhode Island of offering these emergency mail ballots. So we want to just call them early voting so that uh, everybody um, is on a level playing field. Everybody knows what it is. You don't have to sort of guess uh, that you can use it. Um, so that's part of it. The other part is just we're headed toward a tsunami, which is as people start using those more and more, as I said, they're a mail ballot that has to be processed. Um, it's processed by seven people called the Rhode Island Board of Elections. They have to physically examine each one. We're looking at um, over 70,000 in 2020 uh, that have to be hand processed. So um, if we don't switch to real early voting, we're going to face a situation where we probably won't have election results um, for a couple of days. Uh, and I think people are just going to explode uh, when they don't know who Rhode Island voted for for uh, president uh, until Thursday. Um, so we really, really have to do this before 2020. That's fascinating. All modernization. There's a lot of, you know, I listen to, uh, you know, the talk radio uh, callers that will say, well, a lot of this is just rigging elections for Democrats, you know, whatever, whether it's early voting, emergency voting, advocating for early voting in Central Falls, whatever it is, there's that spin. I think that's a smaller voice than it may seem because it's a vocal voice. But how do you answer that block of criticism, if you will? Yeah. So, I mean, on the Central Falls point, it's fascinating. So Central Falls um, advertised these emergency mail ballots as early voting, and they saw an 82% increase um, in people taking advantage of it. Um, uh, Westerly, did the same. They saw a 250% increase. Okay. So three times. Uh, nobody uh, is going on talk radio talking about how uh, people are stealing votes uh, and illegal uh, voting is happening in Westerly. Okay. Westerly and Central Falls, almost an identical size by 18,000 people. What's different? What's different? Central Falls is a community of immigrants. And, and so that's what I'm talking about. Like, we need to make it clear that every community is off early voting so that we get away from uh, accusations that this is this is all fraudulent. Um, 
I'll also say sort of the modernization parts. It's actually, we're doing a ton uh, to make voting more secure. Um, so we're using electronic poll books, um, which are those iPads when you go in to vote. Um, it used to be that there was a big paper book um, and, you know, uh, little slips of paper would get misplaced. And then at the end of the night, the number of ballots that had been cast would differ from um, the number of paper slips. And you'd kind of throw up your hands and say, oh, well, you know, some paper got lost. Now we have this electronic record uh, with an audit trail uh, and we can see when people checked in. And so that modernization in many ways is making voting more secure and we're able to more closely track who is voting um, and who is not voting. And so a lot of these steps um, are making it, I think, far more secure than it used to be. The, 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 and there have been shenanigans in Rhode Island elections, um, particularly with mail ballots during the Cianci era. Um, and, and we're trying to minimize opportunities for that uh, as much as possible while maintaining access, right? That's the balance. It's um, allowing legitimate voters uh, to vote uh, while making sure fraudulent um, election rigging uh, can't happen. And so I think we're striking a pretty good balance in Rhode Island. That's a great soundbite. You know, those dolls where you pull the string, we should just take that response that you just put together there as far as the Central Falls westerly question or not westerly question, the Central Falls criticism, is you'd be able to just pull a doll and have that recited every time that someone poses that, um, you know, sort of xenophobic way of looking at things. Yeah, no, <laughs> it's it's nuts. When I started digging into the numbers, um, you know, uh, and, and I was just blown away because you all you hear is Central Falls, Central Falls, Central Falls. Um, and you never hear Westerly, and it was off the charts in Westerly. And, you know, nothing bad was happening in Westerly. What happened was they had a charter review commission. And they had, um, I think, 40 local charter questions on the ballot. So the ballot was like three or four pages long. And they knew on Election Day that was going to lead the line. So they just encouraged people to come in and vote uh, those emergency mail ballots early, right? So it was good sort of good election administration practices, um, you know, and people took advantage of it. Um, and, and so there's, there's nothing nefarious about it, just like there was nothing nefarious about what was happening in Central Falls. Um, it's just, you know, the lens through which people look at it. Yeah, no doubt about that. That's a, that's a much broader issue than just elections when it comes to Rhode Island and leveling the playing field, you know, in a meaningful way is just getting that lens and, just refocusing it for a lot of people. I think it's on both sides, but especially on those who would call a radio station and complain about Central Falls rigging elections for Democrats. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, you know, um, there are other um, checks people should know, you know, uh, on the system. So, uh, we, Common Cause, was behind a law uh, in 2017 uh, that actually audits the elections after they happen. Um, so Rhode Island is now only the second state in the country um, that uh, actually takes a sample of ballots um, starting in 2020 will be the second state in the country that takes a sample of ballots and statistically uh, judges uh, whether or not uh, the machines accurately counted uh, the ballots because, um, you know, there's suddenly these concerns that the hackers are getting into the machine. So we're taking a real proactive step uh, on the back end to make sure that the, the ballots is uh, marked by the voters are being counted uh, by the machines accurately. So we're we're doing stuff from registration uh, through the counting to sort of bring it more modern and make it more secure. Um, so we've made 
real big strides in the last four or five years. Who's the IT law enforcement agency with jurisdiction to maintain security of our elections? Or does the Board of Elections themselves kind of have some wing that, you know, Steve Erickson oversees somebody in an office that basically is just monitoring firewalls? Yeah, so um, so uh, sort of the cybersecurity of elections is a real complicated topic because um, at the top level, the, you have the federal government, right, in the Department of Homeland Security, um, which has, you know, um, uh, some federal involvement uh, in cybersecurity for elections. But as I said earlier, right, um, under the Constitution, states have this broad authority over elections. So some states don't even want Department of Homeland Security help. Um, they, they argue it's a state's rights issue. Um so uh, so that's at the top level. It's the Department of Homeland Security and something called the Election Assistance Commission. But they can't come into your state. Um, they have to ask permission uh, to help. Uh, at the state level, uh, it's a combination of folks. Um, one is the Secretary of State's Department, uh, which has uh, jurisdiction over the voter file, um, so the voter registration file. And we know from 2016, right, that the uh, only uh, systems that the uh, Russians actually got into were, were voter files. Um, they weren't getting into the, the vote counting machines. They were getting into voter files. Um, and so that's under the Secretary of State's office. She has an IT team. Uh, then the vote counting machines, that's under the Board of Elections. They're separate. Um, uh, and the uh, Board of Elections um, does not have a, an IT staff. They rely on uh, the State uh, National Guard. Um, and uh, the Department of Information Technology for the state, uh, as well as the vendor. So uh, Rhode Island, um, our voting system vendors, a company called ESNES out of Nebraska, um, they provide, um, they they manage the software uh, that connects all those machines, uh, and they provide uh, most of the security uh, as part of a, I think, eight- or nine-year contract they have with the state. So it's complicated, um, but there are many eyes sort of on election security uh, in Rhode Island. Yeah, I've always wondered that. Who's in charge? Who's monitoring that from the outside? It's fascinating to think that the National Guard and, and the depth and breadth of that process, you know, it's not just one guy in an office somewhere. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, um, in some ways it's unfortunate that it's not one person in charge because they don't have command and control over the system. Um, so when there's a, a real threat, um, you know, you have things you have to coordinate. But on the other hand, um, you know, one of the reasons it would be really hard uh, for a foreign government to ever flip an election uh, in the United States is it's so decentralized, right? Every state uses different machines from different vendors uh, using different software. You can't just like hack into one file on one Amazon web server uh, and and flip an election in the United States, right? Elections are so decentralized that it actually makes them more secure uh, in certain ways, uh, which is kind of ironic um, when you when you think about it. It really is, yeah. It well works out. It's like a federalization of technology that benefits us in a lot of ways, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Other than you know, the only downside is if you have states uh, who are kind of bad actors or, or aren't doing their job, it makes you know it's the weakest link in the chain argument. It makes the whole system vulnerable. So um, Rhode Island's fortunate. We vote on paper. Um, we've voted on paper ballots uh, since 1997, and um, and that's really the most secure form, right? You have this paper record uh, that you can trace. But there are states, a bunch of states that are still not voting on paper. They're voting on computers. 
uh, Georgia, Pennsylvania, um, and, and some counties in Ohio and elsewhere uh, that are still voting on um, voting on what are called DRE machines, which are touch screens that don't produce a paper record. Uh, and those make us vulnerable because uh, those systems are, are prone to error and, and can be uh, more easily hacked than a, than a paper record. Um, so in some ways, sort of when you think about could a presidential election be hacked, well, maybe parts of it could be hacked and that um, would cause a loss of faith in the entire system. So even though we're doing a good job here in Rhode Island, you know, if a big swing state is doing a bad job and people call into question the entire election result, a lot of our efforts here in Rhode Island are kind of all for naught um, because we just didn't, you know, those other states kind of let us down. Uh, so there is a, you know, it's a double-edged sword. Right. And those are purple areas you just described. There are counties in Ohio, Pennsylvania, even Georgia. It's like... Man, holy Moses, that's the last thing you need is for a breakdown to happen right there. I mean, if it happened in Hawaii or Rhode Island, you could almost, you know, move on as a as a voter, nationally speaking, I suppose, and, and say, all right, we're going to correct this. But boy, it would be like the hanging chat all over again. Yeah, so we just don't want, you know, um, a digital hanging chat, right? We, <laughs> yeah. we don't want um, somebody going, man, there's some uh, bad software in Georgia. Uh, and so we just don't know who won. Um, luckily, they're moving, right? So Georgia's moving to paper. Pennsylvania's moving to paper. So I think by 2020, by November 2020, almost every state, almost every jurisdiction is going to be voting on paper, which is much better. There's still some other issues um, that have to be solved. But, you know, I think uh, if, if every American has a chance to vote on a paper ballot, uh, it's going to be really a huge kind of watershed moment. I, I agree. Um, in the last few minutes here, if we could look at um, one issue that that sort of falls under your domain that broadly affects Rhode Island is the consolidation of power, particularly in the General Assembly. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, stepping back, um, we were very involved uh, in separation of power. So starting 25 years ago, um, Common Cause uh, said, you know, listen, Rhode Island is still sort of operating under the Royal Charter, um, where we have a supreme branch of government. Uh, so from 94 to 2004, uh, we drove the mo- the movement um, to put separation of powers in the state constitution, which we did successfully in 2004. Um, and that, you know, uh, strengthened the executive uh, at the expense of the legislature um, by allowing the executive to make appointments to all these boards uh, that, that execute the laws of the state. So the CRMC and Board of Education and no longer could legislators sit on those. You know, now the governor um, appoints people. Uh, who run those boards uh, and legislators aren't on them. Um, but separation of powers didn't do anything about sort of the concentration of power within the assembly. So it weakened the assembly uh, compared, if it's a zero-sum game, compared to the executive. Um, but the, but our assembly is still very top-heavy um, in terms of uh, that the legislative leadership uh, controls the agenda more than it does in other states. So what we've uh, done primarily on that is work on the rules of the House and the Senate. So um, there was a big uh, fight uh, earlier this year uh, in the House and then one after in the Senate about how those chambers govern themselves. Uh, you know, they every two years after an election, they have to set their rules. Um, and those rules are only good for those two years. Uh, and this time around, uh, the the so-called reform caucus came out with four proposals uh, to to 
um, make the rules more small d democratic, kind of flatten the hierarchy uh, in the House of Representatives. And we supported that um, and tried to drum up some support for that uh, among our members. Um, and we got some changes in there, um, but but not everything we were looking for. And then um, the Senate uh, mysteriously sort of um, decided, well, this is a good year uh, after it's all been in the news about the, the rules. This is a good year to do a big power grab. Uh, and they said, well, let's make our rules more like the House rules, um, which historically have been the Senate rules have been more open uh, and better. Uh, and we kind of fought back a lot of that and, and won some concessions from the Senate, although their rules are, are worse now than they were um, uh, three months ago. So our our attack has been uh, less stay away from the Constitution, which is what we reformed in 2004 with separation of powers, and less work um, on the, the real sort of inside ball game, which is the, the House and Senate rules. And we'll just keep doing that. You know, uh, every two years we have an opportunity to kind of make our voice heard on those and try to make those rules better, uh, and, and we'll keep doing that. Do you think an alliance of progressives, Republicans, independents, um, even progressive libertarians will ever form in this – inside the General Assembly and possibly overtake the institutionalist Democrats that are in power? Do you think that could happen in the next 10 years? Yeah, I mean, so um, I I do think Rhode Island's headed for a realignment eventually, right? So, um, you know, starting um, in the 60s, a lot of states uh, realigned uh, where uh, what were conservative Democrats um, joined the Republican Party, particularly in the South, Um uh, and uh, and the religious right um, joined with the Republican Party, and Rhode Island never the the Democratic Party never really realigned, um, and I think eventually um, in the next decade or two you're going to see that realignment where the cultural conservative, um, and this is me kind of putting on my political scientist hat, um, not you know endorsing we're not a, we're a nonpartisan group, um, I'm not wishing for this. I just, as an observer, I think you're going to see um, that the cultural conservative Democrats uh, probably no longer finding a home within the Democratic Party uh, and maybe finding a home within the Republican Party. Um, In the short term, I think there are opportunities for coalitions. Um, You started to see that in the fight over the rules uh, in the House. Um, Ultimately, uh, I think it um, there was a little too much sort of People saying I was here first, and they couldn't really um, <laughs> yeah. align um, uh, early enough. Um, but but you did see on the floor votes uh, on the House rules. You saw the Republicans and the progressives sticking together, and you know that's a block of almost thirty votes. Um, so depending on how you know the next couple of elections turn out, uh, that may be a block that's big enough to really force some change. Uh, the question is. Once the reformers get some power, are they still willing to be reformers? Right? Always, so right? A lot of people come in as reformers and leave as scoundrels. Um, and so the hope is uh, that if they come in as reformers, they stick to it and they make some reform. You know, they know there's some there's some major problems with going forward with that sort of uh, consolidation. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I think it's going to be really interesting because this is the first time. In a long time, you know, there have been speaker fights um, and there will be two camps, but then sort of they all they, they, they all come together in the end, except for a few dissidents. This is the first time you have a real sort of large block of people in the House 
um, from the majority party uh, who are sticking out there um, and saying, you know, we're going to be cohesive as a block. Um, so it, it'll be very interesting um, how it plays out from that perspective and whether or not they're willing to form alliances as a block. I'm not sure, you know, when this rules fight was happening, you know, I think that group was um, kind of caucusing pretty regularly and and um, trying to come to common positions. I'm not sure as the session has worn on, many of them were freshmen, you know, they've been quite as cohesive. Um, but the next big thing uh, this year, you know, is always the budget, um, which requires a supermajority uh, vote. So whether or not, um, you know, they stick together on the budget and and can um, try to get some concessions on that, it's going to be very, just as an observer, very interesting to see if they, they stick together. Yeah, once we get the May estimated revenue, it'll be interesting to see where certain reps fall on pre-K and expansion of RI promise and, and some of these things that, you know, will they move back towards the center, if you will, um, based on hard numbers, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things um, that's most remarkable to me is um, I'm in my 11th legislative session and I've never seen a good budget year, hmm. um, right? So this is as good as the economy's been in a couple decades, uh, and we're still running a 200 million dollar um structural deficit with uh projections going out uh for it to get worse so um you know uh, god help the state of rhode island uh when uh the next recession comes because um you know if they think they're making hard choices now uh, they're gonna have to make real hard choices um uh, you know, if the recession comes and, and revenues, tax revenues fall off. So, uh, yeah, it's fascinating. But um, which is actually today's April 1st, yep. we're taping this, um, which is called uh, Census Day. Um, so a year from today uh, is April 1st, 2020, which is the day, it's Census Day, right? That's the day uh, when we're supposed to take the snapshot as a country of who is here. Hmm. Um, and so this is one year out from that. Uh, and uh, w- one of the interesting things about the census is um, about $3 billion in s- federal money comes to Rhode Island, billion a year, uh, based on census data. So to give some perspective, we're dealing with a $200 uh, million, with an M, dollar budget deficit this year. And everybody's... In a, in a panic, uh, out of a nine billion with a B dollar budget, three billion um, uh, annually comes from federal dollars. So if we do a bad job counting people um, next year um, during the census, that's going to make that two hundred million look small, right? Um, so we've actually been thinking a lot about the census uh, and and what the implications are going to be for the budget because. Uh, if we have an undercount here, um, it's going to be uh, just a fiscal disaster for the state. And you get one shot a decade, right? If we do a bad job next year, you don't get to try it in 2021 or 2022 again. You got to wait a whole decade. Um, so so these fiscal issues um, that look so bad in the moment uh, would be magnified by by a bad census. Yeah, it's 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 not only the, the uh, congressional seat issue, which would be related to uh, population not only just not increasing at the at the pace that it would be required to to maintain it, but it's a money issue straight up. As far as the census, how do you engage in the census? Yeah, so um, 
you know, the, the way to engage is just to, to answer it. Right. So, um, yeah. and to encourage people, uh, you know, who are skeptical about answering it to answer it and to assure them that, uh, the census, uh, is confidential, right? They cannot release individual census records, uh, for 70 years, uh, by federal law. Uh, and even if the FBI raids the census office, they can't take the census files. Um, there is a, a law called Title 13 uh, in federal law that prohibits the census from sharing that with any other uh, part of the federal government, the, the, the individual level census files. So people just have to be assured that uh, they should participate and it's going to be private if they participate um, and that there's a lot at stake for them and their communities, right? So um, you mentioned we might lose one of our two congressional seats uh, and be down to uh, one member of Congress for the first time since 1789, which is remarkable. Um, but it's not just that. If you are uh, living in Providence, uh, and Providence has a severe undercount, Providence will lose a lot of reps in the General Assembly, right? So it'll skew power within the state, uh, in the state legislature, not just within Congress. Um, so there's representation, there's money, you know, there's uh, highway funds. You know, it's not just social service programs. You know, the amount of money we get um, for highways uh, and other transportation products projects is all derived from the census. So there's all sorts of stuff at stake. And it doesn't mean they stop taxing, right? It's not like they go, well, yeah. Rhode Island didn't have these people, so we're not going to tax those people. No, you still have to pay out, you know, pay your taxes to the IRS. Um, Rhode Island just won't get the money, those tax monies in return uh, back from the federal government. So there's a lot at stake uh, for the state, but even for just individuals, you know, the the programs people rely on, the roads uh, people drive on uh, are all uh, based on on the census. Absolutely. And my message is that, you know, if you see uh, scare tactics being portrayed, particularly those targeting English language learners who may or may not have – you know, documentation to 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 uh, to live and work in the United States or whatever it is. You know, this sort of um, rhetoric. I think combating that is very important. It should be uh, an apolitical issue, really. You know, we should have a clean census, and it's not grounds for um, xenophobia. There's the word again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a lot of controversy around the citizenship question, um, but uh, what everybody has to realize is uh, that. The census has always counted everyone, citizen, non-citizen alike, right? Um, it was a huge stain uh, on the founding of the country, but the, the, in the first census, they counted slaves as three-fifths of a person. Yep. Um, but they counted them, um, and they've counted uh, non-citizens uh, from the very beginning, from when Thomas Jefferson you know, ran the first census as the first Secretary of State. He had to count everybody in the United States regardless of um, whether they were citizens or not. So, so uh, everybody needs to get counted. It's, it's critically important. Um, and, it, and there are ch- all sorts of challenging populations that you uh, don't think about. The most undercounted population is children zero to four, hmm. right? They can't fill out a form. Right. And maybe uh, they're living with their grandparents and the grandparents think, well, they're not my child. I shouldn't count them in my household. Uh, but the parents uh, don't count them in their household because they're not physically with them. We know that there's a huge undercount nationally. Millions of children, zero to four, aren't being counted. But, 
you know, and they can't speak for themselves. So we have to speak for them. Um, and so that's why the census is just this sort of incredible challenge. And that's a year out from now. We'll have to do a, a pod episode just right before the census comes out. Heads up hockey as this thing hits the streets. Yeah, Do we do in Rhode Island? I wasn't here in, in 2010. I was in New York and the people knocked on the doors. Is that how it works here? You get someone coming around and... Yeah, so the Census Bureau um, does uh, what's called non-response follow-up. So basically, if you don't fill out uh, the form, um, they they knock on your door eventually. Gotcha. Um, that in the Census, it's the largest non-military operation of the federal government. They they'll hire almost half a million people between now uh, and, and next April to do that. It, it's just an enormous undertaking. Um, but what we're trying to do in Rhode Island um, that a lot of other states have done in the past, but Rhode Island's never done, not just wait for the census to come knocking, but as a community, um, reach out uh, and try to encourage people uh, through community groups um, to participate proactively. Right. So uh, New York, I think, put aside 20 or $40 million, something like that, um, for uh, community groups to to promote the census. California put aside a uh, hundred million dollars to promote the census. Um, Rhode Island Governor Raimondo's budget has one hundred and fifty thousand uh, in it. The Rhode Island Foundation just put in uh, two hundred and fifty thousand. We're trying to build a pot of about a million two uh, to to fund community groups to encourage participation in the census um, because we can't just wait for the um, the Census Bureau to come knock on our door, right? We have to be proactive in encouraging people to do it. And the Census Bureau has scaled back their efforts. Um, they had two census offices uh, in Rhode Island in 2010. They're only going to have one this time. Um, they're moving uh, the questionnaire online for the first time. So, uh, in fact, most people are going to be asked not to fill out a paper form. They're going to be given a nine-digit code and told to go to a website. We don't even know how that's going to work. So... Um, yeah, or if that's hackable, right? Or what the kind of yeah, security questions yeah. I mean, around that? The Census that. Bureau is terrified of um, uh, fake websites and social media um, promoting uh, uh, fake uh, census websites. So, you know, they had to make that decision years and years ago. That decision was made uh, like 10 years ago. Um, and and now it's just like as we're coming to uh, doing it, you're like, well, that might not have been the best idea to to move it online. But it's... It's not a decision that can be reversed at this point, so we've got to go forward with it. And Rhode Island's got to kind of step up uh, and, and encourage participation. Yeah, maybe that's the um, first use of blockchain in our in our <laughs> government. You know, we'll be let it live there. <laughs> yeah, we didn't even get into blockchain. Good yeah. thing we didn't on yeah. elections because there's some people trying to sell blockchain elections, and uh, I'm not buying. <laughs> that sounds like a great discussion going into 2020. So yeah. John Marion, Common Cause, a uh, real pleasure to have you on the program. I definitely follow your work and um, really appreciate what you're doing, making, trying to open it up for us here to make things happen in this place, this beautiful state that we're trying to rebuild in a lot of ways, you know? Yeah, frankly. yeah, no. Thank you so much for having me. It's, um, it's great to uh, be on your uh, podcast. And thanks, you know, for bringing a lot of voices to the table who, uh, who some of whom, you know, we're, we're not all hearing from and uh, some of whom we're very familiar with, but, but we're used to just having sound bites from. So thank you. <laughs> My pleasure. Thanks so much. That's all the time we have for today, but I'll be back next week with brand new content. Until then, I'm Bill Bartholomew. We'll talk soon.